Um, I wanted to start it off today's message by telling you I did something for the first time in my life that I've never, ever done before. And I bet many of you in here have done this many times or multiple times. In fact, some of my family has already done this. And this happens to be a medical procedure or appointment. I've been lucky to avoid this medical thing for this point in my life, but because I have now reached a certain age, it was inevitable. And some of you are laughing because you may think you know what I'm talking about. It's not that medical uh, procedure. This is actually from the waist up. Uh, That's coming, but that's not yet. This one was from the waist up. And so what I did for the first time in my 42 years of being on this earth is I went to the eye doctor. I have never been to the eye doctor in my life. My son, my daughter, and my wife all wear glasses, and I was the last one standing. But it was my turn to go. And I asked my wife before I went, I was like, what is it like? I remember like going to the pediatrician when you're a kid, and they have like the E's going the different directions. You like close one eye, it's going this way, it's going that way. She's like, no, it's not that. I said, okay. She's like, you're lucky because they don't do the dilation or like the puff of air, which sounds terrifying to me, by the way, anymore. But I was like, okay, what are they going to do? She's like, it's going to be easy. They have a lot of technology. You're going to like it. So I get to the doctor a little early. I'm like nervous getting there. They can tell I'm nervous. They're like, hey, this is going to be great. It's going to be easy. They take me into this room and there's like machines surrounding me. And she's like, the first thing we're going to do is I need you to look at this machine and just tell me what you see. And I'm not kidding. I look at the machine. I see nothing. I said, um, I don't see anything. She's like, really? And so the tech does some typing on the computer, hits enter, bam, how about now? Nothing. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm blind. Like, I, I all of a sudden can't see anything, right? And she was like, and I looked at the machine, I backed up, I was like, oh, there's a button up here you have to press with your forehead to make the image come forward. That would have been beneficial to know before I got here. I was like, this is like the DMV, right? You stick your head on it, the light. She, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's like, I forgot, you've never done this. I was like, I don't know the drill. You gotta walk baby steps here. So I put my head on it, do the letters, kind of see that, uh, really realize, you know, how, soon, <laughs> how much sooner I should have been to the eye doctor, but I'm here now at least. Then we go to the color test, right? There's six colored circles that have the numbers in there, and you have to tell if you're colorblind or not and what numbers. And I kill the first five. Like, I'm feeling good about it. I'm like, my color vision is just 20-20. And then I get to the last circle. She's like, what number do you see in it? I can't see anything. So I'm like, I'm trying to like, you know, trying to back up, keep my forehead close enough to keep the button pushed. And I can't see anything. I was like, there's no number there. She's like, yeah, there's not a number in that one. You shouldn't see anything. So that's good. I'm like, what? Now you're giving me trick questions here? I'm like, this is not even fair. What's going on? She said, no, you're fine. Turn to the next machine. So I'll do a, a 180 to this machine to my right. And it is a space age looking thing, right? It has like this big circle and it. it has like this hypnotic looking circle going in and in and in to this little round circle that you press your eye against. And when you're looking in this thing, maybe you know what I'm talking about. I may be dumb for even explaining it to you, but just go with me in case you don't know. There's this blue circle logo in there. She said, if you see blue, that means you're not pressing hard enough, your eye against the machine. So keep pressing until you see green. If you see red, that means you're pushing too hard and you need to ease off some. So I was doing like the worst neck dance like you've ever seen, like, you know, just trying to get this thing right. And I finally get it on green. I'm like, okay, I'm good. And meanwhile, my eye is wide open. And then all of a sudden she says, great, hold it. And then I saw the brightest green flash you have ever seen in your life with just my exposed eyeball wide open. 
I couldn't help it. It was involuntary. I just went, whoa, like what happened? She's like, oh, I'm sorry. I should have warned you that the flash was coming. Yeah, that would also have been beneficial. And now I'm truly am blind. So she leads me to the exam room, right? After I just had my eyes like thoroughly blinded. And the doctor comes in and he puts the big lenses over you. And he's like, all right, I'm going to now put some letters across from you. And you tell me which lens helps you to see them better. All right, so is it lens one or lens two? He does it again. Lens, because I just say nothing. I'm like, is this real? Like, what is, am I supposed to answer now? I don't know what's happening. He says, let me try it again. Lens one, lens two. And I'm not kidding. There was no difference. And I was like, this is like the color test, right? You're like trying to trick me. And you're like, I didn't even change the lens, you sucker. Like, you're blind. You can't see it. So I'm like, I just, I'm second guessing. I'm like, listen, I've never been here before. I, treat me like a young child, please. And he's like, all right, I got you. He was very gracious, very gentle. And so he dialed in the perfect lens for me. And it was like the letters across from me were crystal clear. I was like, yeah, man, that's, that looks great. That's perfect. He says, all right, I'm, that's 20-20 vision. Let me turn off the lenses and let you see how you've really been seeing. And when he did that, I could not make out any letter on the wall. I could barely tell there were letters on the wall. And it was just kind of a jumbled mess. And that was truly alarming to me. So because of that visit, I now have some new hardware I get to sport. And I got to be honest with you, I'm still getting used to these things. When I first put them on, I felt like I was walking in clown shoes. I was like, <laughs> like my feet were a lot closer to me than I realized. And I realized I was in trouble. And they're like, do you have trouble seeing near or far? I was like, yes. <laughs> so I don't even know what I am. I just know that these help me see better. So uh, I'll be wearing these from now on. Thank you. Um, my wife said they made me look smarter. So I should have worn these a long time ago. But the eye doctor said something pretty cool to me. And I realized this. He said, if you wear these glasses when you need it, you will realize how unclear things have been before. And you'll realize how hard your eyes and your mind have been working to seek clarity. And that's really what made me go to the eye doctor. My eyes were getting so, I was just hurting. They were watering. I was getting these headaches. And he said, yeah, yeah, your eyes have been overworking trying to seek clarity. So in our scripture today, that's what Jesus is doing. He's providing clarity to his disciples about exactly what it means to follow him. He's being transparent about the cost of being a disciple, as Brian talked about last week as we looked at the first half of Matthew chapter 10. But now in the second half, Jesus is also not only talking about a few more of the cost, he's giving foresight about the rewards that are in store for all disciples. So if you have your Bibles, you want to turn with me to Matthew 10, or if you have an app, you can search that. Matthew chapter 10, we'll be starting in verse 26. I'm changing up the translation I normally read from. Today, I will be reading from the ESV translation, which is the translation in our Matthew journals. So if you have your Matthew journals, we're going to be on page 54. If you want one, there's plenty of copies in the back. It's great if you want to take notes, if that is something you like to do, it has a page to do that. But again, I just want to remind you as you're still looking that up, that most of Brian's message from the first part of Matthew 10 was specifically to the apostles, to the 12 apostles. But the second part of the chapter is not only to those 12 apostles, but to all of his disciples that will be then in that moment and in the future. So this also applies to us. And one reason I wanted to use the ESV translation this week, because it is... I feel like it's more of a smarter translation, so that's why I go to a dumber version of it. But since I got my glasses on, I figured I'd 
take a dive in the deep end here. So the ESV actually brings it into three sections, and I think it makes it super helpful because there's a lot to unpack here. And those three sections are have no fear, not peace but a sword, and rewards. Now, I do want to give a disclaimer before we dive into this. This is not a warm and fuzzy, feel-good message. Jesus is being very direct, and he's being just very clear and sharp about his words and his message here. So although it's not a warm and fuzzy and we get all those Jesus bumps like as we hear this message, it's very crucial and important that we get this. So let's dive into this. Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 26. So have no fear of them. And the them here is the people that persecute the disciples that Brian talked about last week, right? The people that are against them. It says, have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now there's a lot going on here, so let's just dive in right here at the beginning. Jesus starts this section by reminding the disciples that nothing is covered or hidden from God. Now, if you're like me, on the Myers-Briggs, I'm a high J justice person, right? I'm a rule follower. I'm an Enneagram one. I like justice. So that's good news for me. There's nothing hidden. There's going to be justice for everyone, regardless if there's even the gravest injustice ever committed and no one ever finds out about it on this earth. The unjust will be held accountable by God because he sees and knows everything. I liked how one commentary said it as I was studying this week. It said, the judgment of eternity gives us great confidence in God's ultimate justice. Those who seem to cheat justice on earth will never cheat it in eternity. That's why Jesus is saying here, hey, listen, don't fear those who can kill you. Now, I don't know about you, that's normally not a daily worry of mine. Who is going to kill me today? Who is going to try to kill me? Right? There's maybe some people that have some, uh, some fears of death, but not being killed, right? We don't generally have that fear. None of us are really even persecuted for our faith or what we believe, much less be fear being killed because of it. So it's easy to kind of gloss over this or read on like, yeah, don't, don't fear those who can kill you, got it. I'm not really worried about that. That doesn't apply to me. Let's keep moving. But keep in mind this. The disciples were not only enemies of the Roman government because they were Jewish. They were also enemies of their own fellow Jews because they were followers of Jesus. Some of their enemies hated them so much that they wanted to not only kill Jesus, but they wanted to kill all of his disciples. As you remember, a few weeks ago, I preached a message on how Jesus was rejected in his hometown. Even his hometown people hated him or threatened so much by him, they wanted to kill him. So that's why Jesus tells his disciples here, don't fear those who can kill you, but to fear the one that controls your soul and the soul of those who persecute you. I really like how Eugene Peterson 
defines that in the message in Matthew 10, 8. He says, don't be bluffed into silence by the threats of bullies. There's nothing they can do to your soul, your core being. Save your fear for God who holds your entire life, body and soul in his hands. Now, something I like about this scripture, I wanted to just make a point is, you know, it says body and soul. Because Jesus is really harping on, hey, your soul is more important than your body. But that doesn't mean your body is not important. He's not saying to the disciples, hey, listen, you're just a necessary casualty of this thing I'm trying to build, this world's biggest religion, right? You're just a stepping stone to get this to where it needs to go. He's not saying that at all. He's saying that God cares deeply and intimately about all of his disciples. Everyone's life has value. He values them so much that even the number of hairs on their head is numbered. Now, for some of you, that number is not very hard to count up to, I realize. And it's required maybe a lot of subtraction over the years, and mine is starting to subtract as well. But the intimacy there is that God even knows the number of hairs on our head. Jesus is telling these disciples, listen, here's the most important thing that I want to communicate, that death isn't the worst thing that can happen to you. That's normally opposite of what we think. Our lives tend to be oriented around living, <laughs> right, and safety. Even thrill seekers, people that jump out of perfectly good airplanes for no good reason, right, and try to, like, do skydiving, what is the first thing they do is pack a parachute. If they were more concerned about actually landing on the ground or if they really wanted just to jump out of the airplane, they wouldn't worry about the parachute at all. But that's what we do because safety is our core concern, our core value. So Jesus is saying, listen, listen, death isn't the worst thing that can happen to you. And maybe you've realized if someone in your life has suffered and had a terrible disease, and you realize actually this bodily death is a relief of that. Who we really are isn't defined by our bodies, but by our souls. C.S. Lewis said it this way, you don't have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. We are a soul that has a body. That's how God made us. And that's what Jesus is saying. Listen, yes, your body has value, but it's not as important as your soul. So don't be concerned about what happens to your body. Be more concerned about what happens to your soul. And that's why Jesus gives this strong, polarizing, divisive truth here at the end of this section. And I want to look at it from the New Living Translation In verse 32 and 33 of Matthew 10, it says this, Everyone who acknowledges me publicly here on earth, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But everyone who denies me here on earth, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. I mean, Jesus defines and divides everyone into one of two categories. Those who acknowledge me and those who deny me. There's no middle ground. There's no gray area. It's one or two things. Those who acknowledge me, those who deny me. And I kind of dove in on this verse a little bit. I just want to, I really was interested in why the word acknowledge was used there. And I realized maybe my definition of acknowledge is different than what he meant. I generally think of acknowledge just means like, I acknowledge your presence. Like Daniel, I acknowledge you're here right? Like, but it's not that. That's, that's not what really acknowledge means. The definition of acknowledge is to recognize the rights, authority, or status of. Or another definition is to disclose knowledge of 
or agreement with. So it's not just recognizing something, it's actually representing something there. Instead of acknowledge, the other translations use another word, it's, it's confesses, right? We generally know what confesses means. It means to tell, to make known, or declare. So by Jesus using the Greek word that can be translated into acknowledges or confesses, he's saying not only does he want us to respond to him, that's what we hear a lot. Jesus is calling us. He's calling us. He's the one that initiates and he wants us to respond to him. And that is absolutely true. But there's another part of that. Jesus doesn't want us just to respond to him, but to also represent him with our lives. It's not enough just to respond, but to reflect Jesus. And how we reflect Jesus in this life determines our residency in the next. Our afterlife is dependent on if we acknowledge Jesus or if we deny him. So our question I want to ask you from this first part of the section is this. Does your life acknowledge or deny Jesus? Think about that for a second. Does your life acknowledge or does it deny Jesus? I do want to give you some good news this morning. It's not one and done or all, all for nothing, right? I used to think this growing up. I used to think, man, if you lived a perfect life and you're in a car and you're driving and you are in a head-on collision that takes your life, and the moment before you have that collision, you went, oh! If you just filled in the blank with a bad word, you're not good news for you. Just kidding. But like if you, if right before you cross the finish line, you trip and you fall and you blew it, then Jesus goes like, oh, you lived a perfect life, but you screwed up right at the end. Get out of here. Right? That's not what Jesus is saying here. That doesn't mean if you deny me once, then that's it. Because all of us, if we're honest, have moments of denial or questioning or wondering about our faith. And I actually think God loves that. Because that means we're trying to draw closer to him and seeking truth and understanding that. And none of us can ask a question or have a doubt that hasn't already been asked or doubted in the history of the world. God is bigger than our questions and our doubts, and there's truth there if we're willing to seek it. So he's not saying, listen, if you blow it one time, son, that's not what he's meaning. He's talking about kind of the total picture of our life. I've asked this question before, and I want to ask it again because it fits here. Another way to ask is, does your life acknowledge or deny Jesus as would the people in your life know who Jesus really is based on your representation of him? Would the people around you, those closest to you, your family, your friends, your coworkers, your classmates, would they really know who Jesus is? The God that is revealed in the Bible, Jesus has revealed in scripture and the Holy Spirit as he leads us. Would they really understand that based on how you lived your life? And if I'm honest, there's times in my life, I would have to say no. Especially this week when I was on the phone with AT&T multiple times as our internet went out multiple times. I'm sure all of those representatives were like, there's no way that guy knows Jesus, right? But there's times we blow it, we deny, but we're looking at the totality here. Does your life acknowledge Jesus or does it deny Jesus? And what Jesus is also saying here is there is no such thing as a secret Christian. There is no such thing as a low-key Christian. There is no such thing as a private Christian. When we declare publicly that we belong to Jesus while on this earth, then Jesus will declare that we belong to him in heaven. He will acknowledge us in heaven before God. And if we don't acknowledge him on this earth, then he won't acknowledge us in heaven. And that's hard for us to hear, but that's what he said. I didn't say it. He said it. 
And it's very clear there, and he gives us clear understanding of that. So as, Jenny, as Jesus continues this intense message to the disciples, if that was enough, then he goes into this next part of the scripture, which seems confusing to me, because it contradicts other scriptures. It's actually in conflict to what other scriptures say of the Bible. And here's what I mean. Let's read these together. In Matthew 10, 34, this section of not peace, but a sword. Verse 34 starts, do you think that I have come to bring peace to the earth? I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. How about you, but whenever this is like, what? This is confusing. I mean, Isaiah 9 says that Jesus is the prince of peace. It seems like peace is peaceful, peacemaker is one of his characteristics, as it says in the uh, Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. But yet we have the son of God here saying, no, 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 I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. Then in John 14, Jesus himself says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. What is he talking about here? If that wasn't enough, he continues with these paradoxical statements. In verse 35, he says, for I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother. And a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. That probably isn't too hard, but, you know, we get the point. Verse 36 says, And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. This contradicts so many scriptures. Right? It's, it's, if you... Think, you're probably thinking about this in Exodus five or in Exodus twenty, commandment number five: honor your father and mother. It is the only commandment out of the ten that comes with a promise. If you honor your father and mother, you will live a long and happy life. Good things will happen. Or in Ephesians six, the whole first part of it is about good relationships between parents and children. Children, obey your parents because it's the right thing to do. It tells fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. And then we have Proverbs 1.8 says, do not neglect your mother's instruction. What do these verses mean here? And if those weren't confusing enough, believe it or not, the last two verses were the most confusing, I bet, to the disciples. And here's what they say. In verse 38, it says, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, the cross didn't mean the same thing to the disciples as it means to us. To us, it's a symbol of hope, a symbol of love, ultimate sacrifice, salvation. To the disciples, it was a symbol of death, of a crime, of execution. In fact, about 25 years before Jesus is telling the disciples these words, there was a Roman general named Varus, And he ended a Jewish revolt against the Roman government in Jerusalem that happened. There was a big revolt against the Roman government, and he was the commanding officer at the time. And this general, he oversaw this end of this revolt by having 2,000 Jews crucified. 2,000 Jews hung on a cross to publicly display their death and their crime. And if that wasn't enough... As a reminder of what happened, and as a warning of what will happen if you do this, the crosses remained along the roadways in Jerusalem to to remind the Jews of who was really in charge and what their fate could be. The cross meant something very different to the disciples than it does to us. 
See, the modern day equivalent of Jesus saying, take up your cross and follow me is if I said, hey, take up your gas chamber and follow me. Take up your lethal injection and follow me. It doesn't make sense. Hearing those words, as jarring as it may be, was even more jarring and confusing to the disciples. So it seems like this entire section of verses just contradicts other scriptures. And unfortunately, that's one of the biggest reasons people don't choose to follow Jesus, because they think it's just all contradictory. The Bible just contradicts itself. Maybe you've heard that or heard that reason of why people don't. And this is kind of a side note, a free note for today's message is, if anybody ever says that, just say, okay, like where? Tell me where. Or I, sometimes I've had that conversation. I've been in Starbucks reading my Bible. Uh, you believe that? Yeah, I do. I don't. There's too many errors in there. Oh, really? Show me one. And they normally can't because they're just reciting something they've heard. There's not really a connection there. And the reason I also don't believe they're right is because I've studied Scripture, and I think that, and I believe, that Scripture is perfectly in line with itself. And although these seem like they may be out of context, or they may seem that they're paradoxical, they actually are in context. Jesus is saying them to shock them to deliver a truth to these disciples so they will understand how important it is what he's saying. So if we look at the context of what Jesus is saying here, these verses align perfectly with all of Scripture. As I said earlier, Jesus' followers were hated not only by the Roman government because they were Jews, but they were also hated by other Jews. They were hated by everyone. And if you think about the context of the culture, of what families were like in this moment, that this had to create incredible strife and conflict and division among many Jewish families. These families were built upon and centered around their Jewish religion. And anything that threatened that became their enemy. So now they had enemies within their own household. That makes more sense of why Jesus used these words that he did. And choosing to follow Jesus divided families and it ultimately killed relationships. So the sword that Jesus is referring to here is not a literal sword. He wasn't carrying a sword in his belt and used it as an object lesson. It was a figurative thing here. It was a figurative sword that separates those who are for him and those who are against him. Those who acknowledge him and those who deny him. And through these strong paradoxical statements, I think Jesus is getting down to one main point. And that point is a way we acknowledge him is by loving him and choosing him above all else. That statement in the form of a question is this, is Jesus your first love? Is Jesus your first love? Do you love him above all else in your life? Even above your family? Even above your kids? I think a cultural normalcy in our uh, day is to, to elevate your kids above all. And I've seen, honestly, if we call it for what it is, kids can become idols of their parents. Their entire lives revolve around doing what the kids want to do and elevating them. And a lot of times it's at the sacrifice of marriages. And we see a lot of divorces happen because their life gets so plugged into their kids. And the best thing that we can do for our kids is to show them a powerful and strong marriage. So let me ask you that again. Do you love Jesus above all else of your life? Even your family, even your kids, even your own life. Eugene Peterson says the words of Jesus in this way in the message. He says, if you don't go all the way with me through thick and thin, 
you don't deserve me. If your first concern is to look after yourself, you'll never find yourself. But if you forget about yourself and look to me, you'll find both yourself and me. I think that's beautiful how he wrote that. So after Jesus was transparent about what it really means to acknowledge him and to love him above all else, he gives foresight in these final verses on the rewards that lie ahead for all those who believe him. So again, this is not just for those 12 apostles. This is for us as well. Let's look at these final verses together. Matthew 10, starting in verse 40. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Now what Jesus is saying to his disciples is also true for us. That whoever accepts and receives a follower of Jesus also accepts and receives Jesus. Whoever accepts a follower and receives a follower of Jesus also accepts and receives Jesus. And then by receiving Jesus, they are also receiving God the Father who sent Jesus. So receiving someone on behalf of Jesus can be even done as he gives them this example, even as simple as just giving someone a cold drink of water. Even the simplest act of service means that person will receive their full reward. So the question as we kind of land in the plane here is, what is the reward that Jesus is talking about? What is this reward? And if I'm honest with you, other than you all being completely blurry right now, is that I'm not exactly sure. It's not clear what Jesus means by saying this reward. I've read many commentaries kind of studying what does this mean, and it depends on how you really interpret what a prophet's reward is and a righteous person's reward. The lens you look at that through depends on how you define that. But if we're true, there's nothing specific about what this reward is. It could be a specific reward. It could be a general reward. It could be something for this life. It could be something for the next life or both. We just don't know. But here's what we do know about these rewards. Two things. The first thing is this. Receiving the reward is dependent on our acknowledgement and our obedience. Receiving the reward is dependent on our acknowledgement and our obedience. And the second thing is we know the giver. So we can trust that the gift is good and it is worth it. So as I close today, I just want to try to summarize. It's impossible. There's a lot of, of meat on this bone, so to speak, of Matthew 10, 26 through 42. But this phrase was kind of coming on my mind and heart more and more as I was planning this message. I feel like the Spirit was just kind of giving it to me. And I want to explain it to you. And it's this, that whoever receives Christ reflects Christ. Whoever reflects Christ reveals God and receives his reward. I'm going to read that again. Whoever receives Christ reflects Christ. Whoever reflects Christ reveals God and receives his reward. When we truly receive Christ and love him above anything else in our lives, we acknowledge him by reflecting him to all of those around us. And I was thinking of a visual to reflect this. I thought of a picture of the moon. 
And this is actually a picture of the moon on, taken from Riceville Beach. This was the last full moon of 2020, which is probably why it kind of looks angry and orange, and uh, it doesn't really do it justice there. But it was so cool how it was like, just like barely hovering over the ocean. A, a local uh, photographer, a friend of mine, actually took this. And I was like, what a, uh, just an awesome picture. I don't know about you. I always, anytime I see a full moon with the kids in the car, I'm like, oh my gosh, look, I, I'm, I just geek out over it. I think it looks amazing. And anytime there's a full moon around Wilmington, he actually has this, uh, this big, long lens that he can take these incredible close pictures. And you can see all the nooks and crannies and craters and, and color variations and details of the full moon. And it's amazing to see. I mean, the moon is beautiful, especially those moons that are maybe different colors or they're so big, they feel like you could just throw a baseball and hit them, right? It's just amazing to see. But the reality is, The moon is just a big floating rock in the sky. It has no light source within itself. You can't see it because of its own accord. The only reason we can see it is because of the reflection of the sun. That is the only way that we can see the brilliance and the magnificence of the moon is by the reflection of the sun. When people see you, they should clearly see the reflection of the sun. Jesus Christ. It shouldn't be blurry. They shouldn't have to squint and be like, yeah, I, can, I, can, I think I can see it. They shouldn't need corrective lenses. It should be crystal clear to all those in your life. Whoever receives Christ clearly reflects Christ. And whoever reflects Christ reveals God and receives his reward. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you today. We know this is a heavy message. It's a heavy message because it's an either-or statement. God, we realize in Scripture we try to make so many things, black and white issues, this or that, either-or. And really, if we're honest, there's more both-and. There's more grace. There's more gray area in there. But this is not one of those. And in this either-or statement, God, that means that since there are fewer of those, each one is even more significant and more powerful and more poignant because of that. And God, you lay it out very clearly through the words of your son, Jesus. You either acknowledge me or you deny me. You're either with me or against me. So God, as we take a personal inventory of our hearts and life, how would we answer that question? based on how we reflect you to those. Some of us may have received you, but we're not really reflecting you. So God, what would those around us say? Who you really are, who your son Jesus is. And God, the good news is it's not too late that we are still living in the light of our legacy. And God, we can still reflect you for who you are. God, that may we be like the moon that we seem to admire and love so much that we only really can see because of the reflection of the sun. God, that, that people who see us will see your light reflecting out of us. And they will truly come to know who you are because of the way we live our lives. So God, I pray that when we leave here today, this is not just a message that we absorb and we consume, but it actually will be something that changes and transforms us. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.